Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast. This show is all about art, craft, and creativity, and I produce it weekly in the hope that it will help all of us live long and crafty lives. Hi, and welcome to episode 41 of the Craft Sanity Podcast. This week, I'm going to bring you an interview with Weeks Ringle. She's a 45-year-old quilt artist and designer living in Oak Park, Illinois. She and her husband, Bill Kerr, run Fun Quilts. It's a contemporary design studio where they make quilts for individuals, galleries, and, well, anybody who wants a quilt. They've also co-authored three quilting books, and they've frequently travel teaching and lecturing on quilt design. The two of them have designed more than 100 fabrics for Free Spirit. Many of you may be familiar with Weeks through her frequent posts on the Whip Up website, which is really cool. That website is run by Katherine Ricketson, who I interviewed for episode 19 of this podcast. So I'll have links on the blog to Whip Up so you can find out more about Weeks through her fantastic posts that she does. One of the things that really impressed me about Fun Quilts and the work that Weeks and Bill do is their commitment to serving community. They could easily make more money than they do, but instead they donate a lot of quilts to charity organizations and for fundraising efforts. It's just not often that you hear about a couple of quilters who get to say they've created jobs in their community, but that's what Weeks and Bill did when they designed the Many Hands Blankies that are made by developmentally disabled adults at a vocational training and job center in Chicago. The sale of the quilts goes to keep these adult workers creatively employed. Check out CraftSanity.com for a preview of Bill and Week's newest Mendy fabric line. And that fabric should be available at your local quilt shop by mid-December. This week's project is a lovely fun quilts pattern that you can try out at home, so check that out. And we're also going to do a giveaway with three winners. Okay, so settle in with your latest project, and let's get to that interview with Week's Ringle. Who taught you how to quilt in the beginning? No one. No one. Yeah. I think children of my age, there was this sort of unspoken thing that if you weren't a brilliant illustrator at age five, then you were, you know, you weren't considered creative. And um, so I pretty much, you know, grew up thinking that my strength was going to be in, not in a creative field. But my grandmother arranged flowers. She studied Ikebana during the war. My grandfather was a Japanese language intelligence officer in Japan before World War II. I think at some point they lived in Hawaii and he had a Japanese maid. And that woman had taught my grandmother Ikebana, the Japanese art of flower arranging. Mm -hmm. And from, I think, probably my earliest creative memory was this very strong memo to self. <laughs> you got to learn how to do that. So when I went to Japan when I was 21 to work, I thought of Ikebana as being something that I could master because it didn't seem like drawing or painting or something like that. It seemed like you could take lessons and you could get a handle on that. And so I think that was my first real attempt at any, t- any sort of art. Now, what were you in Japan doing? Um, well, I went over there to teach English, but within a year or so, I became an investment banker. In I Japan? W- in, in Japan, in Tokyo. Wow. 
I worked for a Japanese securities company for a bit, and then I worked for the last several years I was there for the the British subsidiary of a French bank. So it was a trilingual workplace. Now, but your your training in college was in Asian studies. So okay, so you weren't right. really setting out to be a banker. I mean, or were you? No, I wasn't. But if you were a twenty-something in Tokyo in the nineteen eighties and you spoke Japanese, there were just Really nice jobs to be had. <laughs> <laughs> so why not take one? Right? <laughs> and you know, I think I I knew at the time that I would ride the gravy train as long as it was interesting. <laughs> but I wasn't sure whether I wanted to do it my whole life or not. But it was intellectually, it was fascinating. But at the same time, I was taking these ikebana lessons on on the side, and I was becoming increasingly committed to it and interested in it and felt like there was this new part of me that was growing that I had never known about. And that was this creative side. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I had done some, you know, basic sort of home ex sewing and a couple of small gifts for friends when I was in junior high school and that sort of thing. But I hadn't really, you know, I really was under the impression that, you know, you were born with artistic ability and creativity, that it was not something that was learned or, or able to be taught. And I really think I carried that until I started doing Ikebana. And so that's what kind of liberated you. Right, to... it really was. And I, I started having success at it, and then suddenly it was a really, really important part of my life. So I think that's probably my earliest memory. You know, and I was 21 at the time, I guess, or maybe 22. And uh, when I sort of first started uh, practicing Ikebana. And so you were investment banker, were you investment banker for how long were you, how long did you stay in that profession? Well, I stayed, I guess I was in Japan for seven and a half years. Okay. And for five and a half of them, I was an investment banker. Okay. What brought you back to the States? I took my own best investment advice. <laughs> and I, um, I um, sold the career and the, you know, the whole nine yards and decided I didn't want to be an investment banker anymore, that I really wanted to pursue something more creative. And uh, I, I sort of tossed around a lot of things, and I decided that the extension of flower arranging could be landscape architecture. And I was also, I spent a lot of time at Japanese gardens when I was there. And so I went, I applied to graduate schools here in landscape architecture. I guess my portfolio of all these, you know, flower arrangements and all this was interesting enough that they let me in. So I went to the University of Virginia for three years for a graduate degree in landscape architecture. And I, at the same time, I guess while I was in Japan, I also started quilting. I should sort of add that. Okay. So at what point? It was in 1987. Were you just kind of working from books or did you take a class? Yeah. So there was nobody there. And at that point, I didn't know any other quilter. Like, Anybody in any country, you know, I had no, I knew nobody who quilted. And but I went to this exhibit in Tokyo of Japanese quilts, and they were a lot of them were traditional American designs, but they were made with Japanese textiles. And suddenly, there's something about living abroad that you see things that are inherently American in a very different light than you do if you're in America. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, I had this appreciation for quilts as an art form. And so I, I went to a Japanese bookstore and I found, I think it was a British, a really small British book that had no techniques in, involved, but just like some pictures of quilts. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, you know, I got a little sewing machine and on the weekends and sometimes in the late evenings, I just started making a quilt using Japanese textiles. And that was my first quilt. 
Oh, fabulous. And it was a contemporary quilt that I designed myself. It, you know, because I didn't have access to anything. Right. Well, and it probably, I mean, who knows what would have happened if you would have had all these books with step-by-step, you know, iron this way, cut this way. You know what I mean? I mean, I that must have been right. kind of cool to, to be able to, not only did you make your first quilt, I mean, you know, you basically, you conjured it up. I mean, that's, right. that's awesome. Right, right. A, um, one of our students um, just started a pattern company, and she was asking me about patterns, and I, I kind of laughed, and I said, I've never used a pattern in my life. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I've never even seen a pattern. I mean, I mean, I guess I've seen them in books and that sort of thing, but I've never, you know, even my first quilt, I just kind of, you know, made it up. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's the most fun way to make a quilt, yes. but, but I'm, I tend to color outside the lines most of the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, well, so, okay, so you have your first quilt, and right. did you have any idea, though? I mean, because you went ahead and pursued the landscape, uh, landscape degree, yeah. and so you weren't thinking at that point that, no. that quilting was going to be your, no. your, your job. No clue. No clue. I, re- I was really very much um, invested in landscape architecture and uh, practicing at you know, architecture firms in Chicago. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I thought that I was going to be doing that for the rest of my life. And so what changed that for you? You know, it was a lifestyle decision, you know, primarily. When I met Bill in 1995... Now, were you guys... Did you meet in college? Or? No, we met no. Um, We met as VISTA volunteers. Oh, okay. And um, this is like the Domestic Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I had finished graduate school and... Um, I had done my master's uh, thesis on the role of gardens as job training devices in a women's prison, mm-hmm. therapeutic and job training devices. And in my research of going to a couple of different prisons, I just had a very strong sense that had one thing been different in my life, I could have been in a prison. You yeah, know, I think that's true for any of us, really. Yeah, and the you thing know. is that I think we grow up thinking, well, there are those people, and you know. Well, and that's I think when once you make that realization that um, it's I know. Profound. Well, for me, it was like this, like almost startling thing because I thought, geez, I'm so. I mean, to be dropped in the family I was dropped in. I mean, I. I kind of was born into a support system, you know. You're right. Not, and 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 I'm thinking without that. Who would I be, and where would I be? And yeah, that that's a quite a rude awakening. And so you, um, it sounds like that was a strong message to you as well. Yeah, I think it. You know, I was a child of the '60s. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I definitely had the "we can save the world," you know, kind of mentality. But I think um, after working with this prison, um, I realized that I was going to go on to, uh, you know, nice cushy. Uh, you know, hardworking, but, you know, nice design firm somewhere. and Yeah, I doing just, some upscale work. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I thought, you know, maybe before I should do that, I do that, I should do like a year of community service because that's kind of like a cool transition. Mm-hmm. And so I called the national office of VISTA because I knew I wanted to do something domestically since I had just lived abroad and that was of interest to me to do something in this country. And uh, they sent me, they said, we want you to go to Appalachia. And I, I said, okay. <laughs> and, you know, and, um, and I was a little nervous about it, you know. And they wanted me to go to the East Tennessee Community Design Center. And um, so I, they gave me the number, and I called there, and Bill answered the phone. Interesting. And my boss was not available, our boss, and we talked for 45 minutes. And... 
something happened. <laughs> and you're like, I'm definitely going to Appalachia. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited like, to go to Appalachia. I know, San Francisco. <laughs> I want to go to Knoxville, Tennessee. <laughs> so, um, no, there was just, you know, it's funny because it was over the phone, you know. So, um, so did you know right away that this was a guy you're going to end I up? I was really clueless, I have to say. And but then, you know, he said, when you come to interview and all of that, you know, why don't we have dinner? And when you're a Vista volunteer, you don't go out because you make, you know, $580 a month or something. <laughs> so he cooked this really nice dinner for me. And I was still clueless, you know. And, but, you know, within six months, we were engaged. Wow. So, you know, we were, we were already in our 30s. And, you know, he had traveled the world as well. And, right. You'd both lived. Yeah. 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 So. Well, that's fabulous. Yeah. What a wonderful story. <laughs> so, so that year of community service turned out to be a very good thing in more ways than one. You know? It did. It did. I did about six months of it. And then Bill's mother, who was the widow, became very ill. Oh. And so we had to leave. Um, both of us had to leave our positions with Vista to go take care of her. And um, we... Uh, then he went to graduate school, and we moved to Chicago, but we were sort of going back and forth uh, to Pittsburgh, where his mother was, for, for four years. Mm-hmm. And um, that was the point at which I realized that I was working a lot of really, really long hours in my job. And, you know, like, I just knew that um, I really wanted to spend those final, those final days and months with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and that my job was not going to accommodate that. And uh, so we started Fun Quilts thinking that we wanted to work together since we had worked together as just volunteers. And he's a trained as a designer. Um, but it was also, you know, when you sort of go through watching somebody you love um, with an illness, it really, it makes you have that sense of, you know, nothing's guaranteed for tomorrow. And let's, let's, you know, let's make sure we're doing exactly what we want to be doing every day. Mm-hmm. And so I think really that was um, that was the catalyst for starting Fun Quilts, was that it was a way for us to have a business, to work together, but have a more family-friendly environment. And, uh, and that was, you know, we weren't sure what was going to happen with it and where it was going to go, but um, it was primarily... We knew we wanted to have children, and we knew we wanted to um, to spend as much time with his mom in her last um, in her last months as we could. Mm-hmm. So, um, and we started Fun Quilts in May, and she died at the end of July. Oh, so geez. that was a good decision. Yeah, we had that time. Yeah, yeah, we and we're able to make the most of that. Yeah. Well, that's that's great, and that you were able to um, spend that time. Now, right. were you had you before you started this business? Yeah. Did had you been making quilts? Yeah. Uh, and selling them and we hadn't been selling them. We had been giving them away. And it's probably it's probably amazing to think about that now, you know, that we would make for you know, we have you know, friends would be having birthdays and we'd make them a quilt and you know, it would be it wasn't they were like quilts out of Hawaiian shirt fabric and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know? oh, I love it. They weren't quilts that you would typically see in, in magazines. Mm-hmm. And and I think what was really nice is that Bill had a, a studio art background as well. So we were coming at this with two different design educations, and so we each had different aesthetics. So it was very interesting to sort of see what happened when we combined our interests and in our, in our backgrounds. Now, there's a burning question that I have to ask before yes. we go any further. Now, how did you find a man that quilts? <laughs> I mean, that's well, awesome. That's you awesome. know, i got to tell you, I mean, the quilting is the, the least of it. I mean, um, uh 
you know, he is, um, he's a, is a pretty spectacular guy all the way around. Yeah. And um, when we first uh, talked on the phone, we were both sort of amazed that we had both, he had also lived in Japan at a different time, a couple years after I did. And, um, you know, we're, we're both vegetarians and, you know, we have like all of these things in common. <laughs> and, uh, we both went to the University of Virginia, he for undergraduate and I went for graduate. And it was just very coincidental. But I think, you know, one of the things that really attracted me to Bill when I met him was that he, um, he's a doer, you know, and he, he, when I met him, he had just finished hiking the Appalachia Trail. Wow. But, you know, it's just 2,000 miles. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <quite> yeah. <laughs> this is an independent guy. Yeah, you have to be a doer. To yeah, do, you're a doer. <laughs> and he had sewn all these little cool stuff sacks because you have to carry everything on your back, you know, uh-huh. for six months. And um, he had designed, like, all these little bags, you know, to put his stove in and his, you know, his sleeping bag and all that sort of stuff. And, um, you know, he was a maker from the get-go. And I think one of the things that why I knew very quickly that I wanted, you know, to spend my life with him was that he inspired creativity in me. And he, he's told me that, like I asked him, we just celebrated our 10th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Said, That's Thank wonderful. You. I said, so, you know, I know what you don't like about being married to me. <laughs> but what, what do you like about being married to me? And he said, um, he said, you know, I get to do a lot of cool things that I wouldn't have done if I weren't married to you. Mm-hmm. And and I, I always sort of feel like he's my partner in crime. Yeah. You know, so, you know, his mom was a weaver. And she is just, you know, our house is filled with her beautiful weavings and very contemporary weavings. And so in his house, his father was an architect, so he had a very creative environment that he grew up in. And the sewing machine was in his bedroom when he was growing up. So from an early age, he was sewing. And he just was kind of brought up with this, if you need something, you make it. Excellent. So he learned how to sew and cook and everything from an early age. And I had never had any interest in being in a typical gender role, you know, marriage. And right. So I think, you know, when I met him and I, I realized that it wasn't just going to be me taking care of him. Right. <laughs> he, he would take care of himself. It was going to be like yeah. we were going to have adventures together. Right, right. Yeah. Right. Well, that's fantastic. So when, and that first phone call, did you learn that he could, he knew how to sew and everything? Or was that something you uncovered during the first dinner? Well, I pretty much uncovered it during the first dinner, but I guess pretty soon after we met, he started like looking at my quilting books because I had some quilting books by then of mm-hmm. like Japanese quilters whose work I was, I was really interested in. And, and we started talking about making quilts together within a couple of months after we met because I had some fabrics and then he had lived in Africa for um, a year and a half. And so he, he, he had some interest in African textiles and so we were talking about making things. Because, you know, when you're a VISTA volunteer, you don't go out on dates. You know, you play Scrabble and stuff like right. that. You know? right. <laughs> and that's kind of like, there's, some, there's something that's very stripped down. There's no pretense, you know, you cook your own meals and that's your date and then you play Scrabble. <laughs> right, right. There's no, like, night on the town. With, no. You know, yeah. But then you get really to the essence of who each of you are. Mm-hmm. And we mm-hmm. went camping and stuff like that, you know, in the Smoky Mountains. So. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. 
So did he have to leave a job too when you yes. guys started to start the visit? What was he doing at the time? Well, he was also a VISTA volunteer. Oh yeah. So when you guys moved back, you had already gone to graduate school. I'd already gone to graduate school and he had not gone to graduate school yet. And he came to the Institute of Design here in Chicago at IIT, mm-hmm. Illinois Institute of Technology. Mm-hmm. And so he studied product design there and you know, he was like a Motorola fellow, you know, and got um, you know, generous scholarships from Motorola and, and had some interesting kind of corporate job offers. And he was of the same mindset as I was about, you know, his mother's situation and wanting a family-friendly life. Mm-hmm. And we just thought, you know, well, what are we waiting for? You know, we should just, we should just try this and see what happens. And if it doesn't work, we do something else. Mm-hmm. But that there wasn't any time, there wasn't any time to wallow, you know, we just had to be decisive about, you know, we knew that she didn't have much time and we just had to figure out how we were going to spend it. And so did you guys have money to like figure out how to start a business and not have to hold on to day jobs? I mean, were you able to, to do that or did you kind of just wing it for well, a while? Well, we, you know, because we had been Vista volunteers, this is kind of the irony of being a Vista volunteer is that, um, if you're a VISTA volunteer, you learn how to live really, really simply. Mm-hmm. And so I was supporting our family when he was in graduate school, and we were continuing to live really simply. And then we bought a house that was a smaller, a small house, but it's, it's enough for us, you know? Mm-hmm. And we just figured out ways, um, ever since we've known each other, to live simply and live on a budget. And it's not, it's not a hardship for us. You know, we just, we live simply, so we don't need, we didn't need a lot of money. But we didn't want to have any sort of financial crisis about this. So, right, right. So we started it in our home, so there would be no overhead. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, we lived on our savings for, for a little bit, but pretty soon, you know, pretty soon after we started, we started selling. We were never in a crisis situation, but mm-hmm. part of that is because we were living very simply. Right. It wasn't like you had to say, okay, I, I'm going to have to hold off on the Rolex because you probably didn't have one to start with. <laughs> right. Know? But you right. Know, we, also, we also did use our savings. So did you start just making quilts so you'd have inventory or did you try to take orders? No, we went to the International Contemporary Furniture Fair and we decided that if we could get into that show that we might be able to get a business. And so... We went to that show and um, we sort of launched our business there in 1999. And then I want to say like two days after we got back, we got our first call from a magazine. And, you know, those things don't always result in orders. Right. But it was encouraging. And then um, our uh, a wonderful writer here in Chicago for the Chicago Tribune put one of our quilts um, on the cover of the home and garden section in the fall of 1999, and that really started the phone ringing. Wow. I think the difficulty with, you know, starting your own business isn't the, you know, designing nice things. It's, the, you know, it's health insurance and things like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's all of this, even if you're not paying rent and if you, even if you're not paying staff, there's, there's quite a bit of, you know, accountants are $135 an hour and, you know, <laughs> right, right. there's other people that have to be paid, you know, and so I always encourage people to make sure that they do have some savings because you really want to plan for costs that you can't anticipate. Mm-hmm. Well, and the whole point too is to, if you're trying to live a, a, you know, kind of a happier life and have a more family-friendly career, if you don't plan, then you're just going to be so stressed out that it won't be nearly as fun as, as it could right. be. But I think that there have been situations where, you know, I've, I, I, there was a neighbor who, you know, she sort of envied the fact that we had this 
studio and the you know lower level of our house, and we could you know have dinner every night together. And you know, our daughter wasn't in daycare, and she said, "Wow, you know, I wish I had that." And I said, "But would you want to give up direct deposit to have that?" You know, I mean, it's not like I want what you have, but I don't want to make any of the sacrifices you've made. <laughs> yeah, because it, there are sacrifices. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you have to worry. Was health insurance a big worry for you at first? Health insurance is, um, was a, is a huge issue. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I think I just had no idea when we started that, um, you know, that the cost of health insurance for a small business was going to triple in four years. Oh, goodness. And we're fortunate that Bill teaches for Dominican University, and they provide health insurance for us now. But it's a huge, huge issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's one that a lot of people don't think about. They don't. You know, the health insurance, especially if you're pretty healthy. Right. You know? Yeah, well, I'm pushing for, some. I hope, some kind of reform. I know Kraft Sanity is not going to be able to reform the health care <laughs> system. But, boy, if I could, I would because it, we need some help with that. Yes, we do. Yeah. Well, and so, so you kind of decided that, okay, you made this choice, you're going to do this. Things started picking up pretty quickly, it sounds like, mm-hmm. where you had uh, some sales going. And right. Now, did you get to a point where the phone is ringing and you're like, oh boy, it's the two of us and we have a lot of quilts to make? <laughs> no, because, um, you know, it, it was, uh, we were pretty fast, you know, in terms of making the quilts and we had structured the business model in a way that we were going to use machines. You know, we weren't going to do any hand sewing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think we we structured the business model from the get-go pretty well. I think the thing that really, you know, the real sort of big turning point for our business was 9-11. And because we were doing this New York show, we had a tremendous amount, percentage of our sales in New York at museum shops and through interior designers and that sort of thing. And uh, the day before 9-11, we had you know, conversations with museums that were ready to place significant orders and, you know, suddenly it was all over. And, you know, we sat down and said, we need to change the company today. And we started, you know, there was a gallery that was doing a show of our work and we thought, oh, what the heck, we'll put out a little flyer and maybe we'll teach a basic quilt making class. And within, and we said, you know, maybe we need to go into the hobby quilting world. And we'd been a little afraid of it because we hadn't seen anybody with contemporary work that looked anything like ours in the the hobby craft, the hobby, you know, world. Mm-hmm. And so we were worried that maybe there wasn't a place for us there. But we thought, well, you know, maybe we'll just see. And we put out the flyers and suddenly we had like 25 people, you know, who wanted to sign up for classes. Yeah. And then pretty soon, within a month or so of that, Rockport, the publisher of our first three books, called us and one thing led to another and they wanted us to write a book. And then... Free Spirit contacted us and, you know, was interested in having us design fabric. And so, you know, suddenly there was this new part of our business that we had not anticipated, but we had been open to because we had sat down after 9-11 and said, you know, we really need to realize that our business has to change because Mm -hmm. that market might not be there for a long time, if ever again, at that rate. Right, because before it was just commissions, basically, and and orders of quilts that we were just designing and making quilts for people. Yeah. And there wasn't there wasn't a fabric line and there weren't books and there weren't there wasn't design camp and now we've you know, we've got this new many hands blankies line. None of that was, was a part of our business, so and how long did it take after you decided to kind of to open the door to some other avenues here uh, to get your charity aspect of your business going? Well, we decided the charity aspect was day one. Okay. That was 
you know, because of the whole Vista thing, and we we thought we have to build it into the infrastructure of our company. So we're going to do we're going to donate one quilt for every ten that we sell, and we're just going to do that. And wow, that's a, that's a lot of quilts. So how many did you donate? How many how many have you donated so far? Do you have any idea? You know, I know I kind of keep track by organization, mm-hmm. and because uh, you know some quilts. You know, are baby quilts and other quilts are king size quilts. You know, and some are five thousand dollar quilts and some are hundred dollar quilts. You know, it sort of varies. Mm-hmm. But I know that there's probably about a dozen different organizations that we've you know given to like significant numbers to. We've given more than that to like one offs to many many organizations. But I know there was a, a children's aid shelter, HIV AIDS shelter here in Chicago that we have given. I know at least like 28 quilts too, and a teen runaway shelter here in Chicago that we've given about a dozen to. Wow, that's great. So lots. That's so great to see. You know, you're giving back. You know, so yeah. much. And that must be so wonderful too for the recipients to get these wonderfully handcrafted, uh, you know, just wonderful quilts. Well, it's I awesome. think the thing that's really nice about it is that you know the children, especially in the in the age shelter, HIV age shelter. They go in there with the clothes on their back, and they get to choose when they like. Mm-hmm. And so that's you know that's really meaningful. But now we're working with the CARC, which is an organization that does provides jobs and job training for developmentally disabled adults. And uh, they approached us about a year ago, and they needed some jobs. And so we designed this line of blankies. They are making those for us. It's the first time that we've had somebody else doing something for us. Now, are those machine done? We designed a stitching pattern that is uh, the long-arm quilting machine automatically stitches the pattern. Okay. And the workers cut up the yardage and they put bindings on them. So it started out like we knew that they had some basic sewing skills and... We wanted to figure out a way to get as many people jobs as possible. So we looked mm-hmm. at their skills and their machinery, and we came up with this idea of these blankies. And we're selling them as fast as they can make them. Wow. At this point. That's great. And we have, right now, I just got it. We have seven people, I think, full-time that are working on it. That's great. What a great job, too. It's a wonderful, wonderful project. Well, and I think it's wonderful, too, that when you started your business, you decided right away, we're going to give back. And I, that, that's really impressive, you know, because I think a lot of people aren't as concerned at the front end. They're like, well, I'm going to try to make some money first and then be charitable. But uh, that's really great to see that the two of you have such a strong commitment to community. Thank you. That's really wonderful. After 9-11, you kind of re- reconfigured your, right. your business model. And was it kind of scary before you started, started getting these offers? Even before that, you know, just starting a, a business is nerve wracking. And I mean, it's, it's very exciting, but it's, Especially, I think, in, in the, the late 90s, before, prior to 9-11, you would sit there and, and look at all of, that was like the big dot-com, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. bubble and everything. And, yeah, so everything's and going. And there was a part of us that would just sit there and think, you know, is it, oh, should we be doing this? I mean, you definitely second-guess yourself a little bit at the beginning. But I think, you know, both of us really felt inherently that if we have good educations and I kind of believe that if you're doing things for good reasons, that sometimes they have a way of working out, and if they don't, you'll figure, you'll know what to do later. Mm-hmm. So I think we, you know, we had faith that eventually things would work out, but you know, there were some lost nights of sleep, definitely. Do you still work out of a home studio, or do you have an off-site studio? Now? Well, you know, I think we we never want to have an off-site studio if we can help it, because it is so family friendly and you know uh, our daughter's five and 
uh, it's very, very nice to be able to, you know, if you, sometimes you're like, oh, I think there might, she might nap today, you know? And then I can go downstairs and get a couple of hours work done, you know? Right. And the bus stop stops right in front of our house, and so I can work and go meet the bus and go volunteer at the school, but then come back to home and get things done. And, and you know, we often work at night sometimes, too. And so I think, you know, we do, the Many Hands Blankies are down at a job training facility. So right, that's, so that's off-site, yeah. Yeah, that's off-site, and that's great. But I don't ever really want to, you know, we have a wonderful studio, really nice. You know, for me, it's very nice. And Is this like in your basement then, just in, in your our, house? It's in our basement, but we live in a 1914 Arts and Crafts bungalow. Oh, wow, that and sounds so wonderful. And so it's half above ground and half below ground the basement is. Okay. So we have um, exposure on east, south, and west sides. So there's a surprising amount of natural light in it, and it has its own entrance. Awesome. So um, it's really perfect for a home business. And this office is separate from the studio, and there's a bathroom down here. And so, you know, you look out the window, and there's daffodils in the spring. And, I mean, it's, it's lovely. It's really lovely. But it's also very much a part of our community and our lives. And <laughs> right, so, you're never really leaving. Yeah. I mean, you know, because yeah. it's your home. Yeah, yeah. and so um, I think because of the flexibility that allows us in caring for our daughter and managing our other responsibilities, I hope we don't ever have to leave because it's separated physically by, you know, its own entrance and everything. So it's important to have a separation for me. You know, it's really important that clients not go upstairs and that sort of thing. But I don't need it to be a separate building. I just need it to be a separate floor and a separate entry and a separate bathroom and all of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and it sounds like it's working wonderfully it's for you. It's working great. So your husband then, Bill, it teaches... At university, yeah. Yeah, and how much quilting does he do then? He does a lot. Yeah. Is, is, a whole lot. Yeah. So he's yeah. kind of juggling kind of two jobs then? We're both really juggling two, do- two jobs. You know, I'm, I'm kind of the... I mean, he does a lot of our daughter's care... Um, as well, but um, day to day, it's day to day, yeah, day to day. I'm kind of the primary caregiver, mm-hmm. like you know, it's like four days a week versus three days a week, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and he teaches a couple of days a week, and uh, so he's juggling that and fun quilts, and then I'm juggling fun quilts and. You know, making sure our daughter's leotard fits for gymnastics. Yeah, right. <laughs> All those important things, yeah. You know, making sure yeah. she signed up for swimming and... Right, know. right. So right. all that... Yeah, well, it's, and it sounds like it, well, it's just wonderful to hear too how well that it's working, and you don't have to, you know, be rushing home on a lunch break to make sure you can find the leotard. You know, I mean, it's all right. a little less, you know, hectic for you. Um, so, what has been the most rewarding part of of what you're doing and how your life's arranged right now? Um, from, you mean from like the personal perspective or the well, professional? Well, just, you can take that, you know, wherever you, because it way. sounds like you're kind of blending, the way you're living is really a blend of a, of a, you know, a career and a, a family yeah. life. I mean, you've done, you've struck this wonderful balance, it, it appears, from my perspective anyway. Well, I, I think like the most rewarding thing to me is that, uh, most days of the week, we eat three meals a day as a family together. Wow. And that's, it sounds like such like a, a not a very noble accomplishment, but no, it's me, a tremendous, it's really a big deal. Yeah, it is a big deal. Yeah, it is an absolutely big deal. Yeah. And, you know, that's, um, that's really that, you know, our daughter gets a lot of time with both of us. Mm-hmm. And that is um, that we've created a life where that can happen is very important to, to both of us. I think from a professional standpoint, you know, since I worked in 
Tokyo, and in, in some ways I consider Tokyo my hometown. It just it, it, it was such a great fit for me. Last year we went to to Tokyo to see some friends, and we also did an article uh, with Quilts Japan. And Bill and I walked into a quilt shop there, and we saw our fabric on the shelf. Wow! For Free Spirit, and it was just it was just like this really lovely moment of wow. We made it, look how far we've come, you know, and uh, so that was really, it, you know, it's, it's, it's little moments like that that I sometimes mm-hmm. think, you know, really make you feel like you're doing something interesting. I got the list of all the people that were given jobs to at, at CARC last week, and that was really powerful for me, like looking at the names of seven people's lives who are a little bit better because we designed some blankies for them mm-hmm. to make, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, Bill and I, our whole family is going to London, and I'm going to be doing some work with a prison program that was written up on on, uh, on Whip Up that teaches quilting to inmates in prisons as mm-hmm. a rehabilitative tool. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are opportunities like that that I have now that I didn't have 10 years ago to do things that are useful to society. I guess that's that's really the most meaningful thing to me, is to feel that somehow I'm being useful to society. Mm-hmm. Well, and you definitely are. I think. Well, I'm intrigued by the your work that you've done because you did the, the landscape with the gardening work with prisoners before. Right. And what have you seen? What change have you witnessed when you work with prisoners? Well, it isn't just prisoners. You know, we do an annual design camp uh, one week um, where people from all over the country come to take a week long introduction to design that people without design backgrounds and but it's prisoners too but it, it, it's the process of making something and the process of nurturing an idea I think is a tremendously healing thing for somebody who is in need of healing mm-hmm. and you never really know what anybody's situation is you know we thought when we started design camp that it was just going to be like a quilting workshop and we found through private conversations over the years that there is a tremendous amount of healing that happens. One of our students uh, lost her teenage son in a traffic accident and wanted to make a quilt about the grieving of that. Mm-hmm. And that she wrote us a lovely note saying being able to make something about that process helped her turn the corner in her grieving. And, you know, there are other people who, you know, life is not gone the way they thought it would or mistakes they've made or regrets and I think the creative process has a tremendous ability to heal people Mm -hmm. you know I think the prison programs that I'm in touch with right now are are very interesting because you know sometimes it's a self-worth thing that like they had no idea that they could make something beautiful Mm -hmm. and that you know that that I did that kind of thing um, is very empowering to people the act of creating is is a hopeful activity Oh, sure. It's very interesting to see how without having even setting out that agenda, like, you're going to be changed if you make this quilt. <laughs> right, right. You know? right. Well, plus, I think a lot of times people would be like, yeah, right. Yeah, you know? exactly. And they might have an attitude about doing it, you know. Exactly. Where... But I, I remember, like, this really wonderful conversation I had with a former drug dealer in the Bay Area when I was researching prison programs, and he said, why is it that I can grow this bean this bean plant, but I can't take care of myself. Or why can I make good decisions about this, but I've made so many bad decisions about my life? And there are sort of parallels, I think, between, like, why can I make a beautiful needlepoint pillow or a beautiful quilt, but I've made such a wreck of my own life? 
and that I think awareness starts to lead to change. You mm-hmm. know, so it's you know it's, it's very it's very interesting to me that whole idea of creativity as a as a healing tool or as a tool for personal growth and. I'm just a total sucker for that kind of thing. Well, yeah, and I think it also, I know personally, I was always so interested in making things and learning new skills to make things, you know, try right. new art forms that I didn't really have time to, like, get myself into some any major trouble because I was, like, yeah. you know, making stuff or right. trying to figure out how to make stuff. And our prison system in this country is something to be desired, too, because I think a lot of times, you know, we lock people up, but we don't do a lot with them while they're there. Right. You know, and I think programs like what you're doing, that sounds so fabulous because it, it's so important to make sure that we can try. I mean, some people... There might be exceptions to this, but I would like to believe that there's good in every person at the core that you can figure out a way to help them harness something they're good at that's legal, you know? Right. And I think, too, that you know, not everybody can be rehabilitated. There's mental illness. And right. Oh, there's so many there's factors. All, there's all kinds of factors. But I think the idea of figuring out a way to bring out the best in people instead of just the worst Mm-hmm. Um, and especially, you know, there are some of the programs I'm interested in have inmates make things that are then given back to society and, and they're charitable gifts. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's kind of an interesting twist as a, as a form of like reparations to society for wrong having been done. But mm-hmm. anyway, it, it's very, uh, it's very interesting to me. And, you know, I, I mean, we love designing fabric and we love the design challenge of it too, but I think the idea that there could be more to our work than just making the pretty things mm-hmm. is has been really very, very satisfying to us. Well, and I'm sure it's been wonderful for the people receiving the information and, and you're, you know, learning that they can do these things. I think that's one of the most wonderful things when we realize, like, oh, wow, I can do this, you know. Even if it's not like on a healing level, you know, I got a wonderful email from somebody who had come to design camp. Or I guess she came to a different workshop we had done. And she just sort of emailed us like a year later saying, you know, she's a software designer in Boston. And she, you know, emailed saying, I'm taking all these classes and pottery and, you know, uh, music. And I mean, and she's doing things to nurture her creativity. And it's now a part of her lifestyle that it wasn't before she came to take the class with us. Well, and that's wonderful because it opens up an avenue to right. people that, especially if they're not feeling like they can be creative, you know, between nine and five during the day. So. Right. It's a very sort of fundamental need is for everybody to have some little aspect of creativity in their life. And so, you know, we're not interested really in teaching people how to make our quilts. You know, make your quilt. Mm-hmm. You know, who are you? What do you have to say? Right. Do you have an environment for creativity in your life? You know, have you made a space for creativity? And and I think just sort of like even just talking through that awareness with students, it seems so simple, but they've never been asked that question. Well, a lot of people walk around with the belief, too, that they're not creative. Absolutely. Well, I was one of those people. This is what's so amazing. Yeah, and that, that is, well, I think you're, it's a wonderful testament. You went from thinking you weren't creative and, you know, didn't have this in you right. to now, I mean, look what you're doing. You're inspiring so well, many people. Well, you know, we have, we have this new line coming out from Free Spirit called Mendy, and it's based on the Indian body art. Oh, yeah. And th- th- that inspired the patterns in this collection. I hand-drew the patterns, and then, you know, Bill manipulated them, and Illustrator, and I mean, there's all this process that went into them. But I sat there, and I had this, like, wow, I couldn't draw. Like, 15 years ago, I didn't know how to draw. And suddenly, I've got this 
line of fabric that's going around the world that I drew. <laughs> like, how was that possible? Yeah, that's so awesome. <laughs> you know, yeah. and it really, you know, it, it always kind of like stops people cold in classes when they, they start on those, you know, like, oh, yeah, I didn't have an art background like you. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, I didn't draw until I was 30 years old. Yeah. You know? So, um, you know, it pretty much nips that in the bud. Because, like, you know what? Really, what I want to hear is, like, what you want to do, mm-hmm. not why you can't do this. Because if you, if you make up your mind you can't do it, you really can't. I think sometimes we fight ourselves the hardest. Yeah, and I think it's scary. It yeah. just comes down to fear. Yeah. They don't want to fail. You know, it's easier to say I can't do it than to try and fail and risk failure. And, and that, you know, I always say to them, like, the only failure is not trying. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like uh, anybody out there that wants to design fabric and they think they can't draw, that's not a good reason not to, not, not to put it on well, your list of you things know, you can't do. Well, you know, I mean, there do, was 15 you know. years of really hard work right. to get that point. Right. Oh, not saying you just woke up and could do it. But, yeah. Um, so how do you answer the question now if people ask you if you can draw? I always say I always hope to learn to draw better. Yeah. But I, you know, I say, yes, I can draw. It's like yeah. I'm a competent drawer, but... Are you self-taught in that? I mean, no, no, that it was skill? in graduate school. Okay, okay, no. yeah, you did that. Actually, before, you know, my, I had drawings that were published while I was in graduate school or just at the end of graduate school, and I, I got some awards for that sort of thing. So I'm over that. Mm-hmm. You know, I got over that. <laughs> About 10 years ago, I got, yeah. I got over the I can't draw thing. Yeah. <laughs> what is your most favorite quilt? Do you have a quilt that you've made that's just something you just absolutely love? I'm sure you love most of the quilts you make, but... The one that's it's very... I guess it's most touching to me is that we adopted our daughter from China in, in 2002. We waited so long, you know, and it was just years of waiting. And then when we finally went there and we met, like, the foster mother had been taking care of her and everything. And prior to that, it was all about me and when are we going to, you know, when is she going to be here and when are we going to have our family and mm-hmm. all of that. And I got there and I was suddenly thinking about, all of the mothers who, because of the one-child policy in China, had to give up their children. Mm-hmm. And how they, at the same time, I was experiencing this tremendous joy at having a daughter. They were grieving the loss of their daughter. Mm-hmm. And how that was such a bittersweet experience. And so I made a quilt that will be given to our daughter uh, when she's old enough called Daughters Lost and Found. And oh, it's wow. this sort of this fade of pinks and grays. It's sort of like this river of girls coming in one direction with a sort of gray background. It sort of says there's both joy and there's sadness to it. Mm-hmm. Such a personal quilt. Yeah. And it's not, it's not a design that will ever be in our catalog, obviously. Right. But it's, it's one that I was a new mother when I made it and you know, I had no business making it. I did so many other things to be doing at the time. But I really wanted to capture that emotion and that yeah. experience before it was gone, yeah, you know, and suddenly I was worried about, like, oh, what time is Taekwondo, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> I really right. wanted to capture that, and so I was really glad I made that. Well, and what a beautiful, what a beautiful quilt. And that's something that she's going to treasure that, yeah. you know. Yeah, but then I also have this quilt that I just made. I did a thing on Whip Up about, I was going to submit a quilt to Quilt National. Yeah, is, I did read that. Did yeah. you read that? Yeah, and, I did. And so I, I, I finished the, the quilt that I sent there, which, you know, there's like five million people applying for that thing, so... I'm not, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm optimistic about getting in at all, but if I was going to do it just to force myself to try a new technique or whatever, the quilt I made for that I absolutely love. 
absolutely love. I'm so excited about it. And, but I can't put it on Whip Up until I get the rejection letter <laughs> because if you're disqualified if it ever appears on a website that's not oh, your own or whatever. Okay. So I can't really show well, it to Well, let's, let's think on the bright side here. I yeah, think yeah, you're, yeah. You're get in, so. But again, you know, I think I'm, I'm sort of at a point in, in my career where I don't, you know, obviously you want, you'd love to get in, but I did it because I needed to challenge myself, not because, you know what I mean? I right, to get in. right. It wasn't just to get in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's good that you have that outlook because I think sometimes people, if they measure their success by, you know, the judgment of others, then, yeah, that's, that's going to be a rough road, you know? Well, and, it's, it's part of the reason I kind of like, I kind of outed myself on it, you know, on, on Whip Up is that I really thought, you know, let's just be honest that there, you know, there's, there are a couple thousand people that apply for that. And who knows, you know, what the judges are interested in that particular day. That's true. I was going to really put out a call to anybody who doesn't get in. It's like, why don't you post your quilt on Whip Up and so we can all see it because there are so many fantastic quilts that don't get in. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, well, I think that, that'll be, hopefully you get in. <laughs> uh, but I guess I'll be just ex- ex- excited to see your quilt. Even if yeah, you don't. I don't. <laughs> Especially since we know we all will get to see it. Exactly, you know? exactly. Yeah, so that's, that's fantastic. So, well, what inspires you when you're in your studio? We did this talk at American Patchwork and Quilting. They had like this creative circle of excellence a couple of years ago, and they invited us to, to give, like, the keynote address to, like, the 30 most influential quilt makers in the country or something. It was like, huh? Like, why us, you know? Wow, that's excellent. <laughs> it was, very, it was very flattering. And we had to figure out, like, how do you talk to really famous quilters about creativity? We use the analogy of the bee and how the bee cross-pollinates. And the bee doesn't distinguish. In order to make honey, the bee can go to the apple tree, it can go to the clover, it can go to any flower that provides pollen. I think we really take that approach in terms of our creativity and and our uh, what inspires us. And we try to expose ourselves to as many interesting places and interesting people and interesting books and interesting ideas as we possibly can, because I think that's where you get inspiration. I don't think you get a subscription to a magazine and that that happens. You know, I think you really right. have to create an environment in your home where there's space for it in your head. But I think you also have to, like, have a lot of different influences. And, I mean, there are people, obviously, like, you know, Picasso or Andy Warhol or people like that who, you know, it's all in their head. But I think the rest of us get interesting ideas from surrounding yourself with other interesting ideas. Not that you're translating any of those directly, but I find interesting places and interesting people and somehow things just, sparks just sort of happen when I'm surrounded by interesting situations. Like the going through that process, you know, was, was inspired me to make that particular quilt. What inspires me is learning. I think learning is probably, it's like a, a simple answer, but learning new things mm-hmm. and reading about new things and seeing new things and putting myself in different environments, I think is very, very interesting. And we just went to, I, I did a whip up post about the city museum in St. Louis. And yeah, I saw that too. Yeah, you know, that was just an amazing place. It was like, you know, a four hour drive down there and all that. It was like a hassle to get there. But I was so glad I went because I really did feel totally just juiced up on creativity. I know when we started thinking about this Mendy line of fabric, we went to the Indian neighborhood in Chicago and walked through sari shops mm-hmm. looking at Indian textiles. And, mm-hmm. and um, you know, we, we got books out of the library on, 
this henna body art and started looking at patterns. And, you know, at any given time, there's a, a pile of library books in our house usually split between my side of the bed and Bill's side of the bed. (laughs) (laughs) There's like, you know, there's business magazines and there's books on geology and Persian rugs and, you know, insects (laughs) and textile patterns from, you know, Africa. And, I mean, we just really try to learn Mm -hmm. new things and, and see what spark, you know, starts. Well, that's the wonderful thing about libraries is they're a source of free inspiration. Absolutely. And you get to take it home with you for about three weeks. I know. Maybe renew for another three weeks. That's right. That's what I do. I'm a total book hog. Oh, we are too. We are too. (laughs) And I actually go through a little bit of a mourning process when I I take the books back and it's like I have a hard time putting them in the bin because I like grow to really love these books. I know. And my husband's like, you know, we we really don't have room for like, you know, every single book you love. Yeah, that's right. So yes, but yeah, well, that's, that's great to hear where you seek inspiration and where you find it. And it's basically the answer, it sounds like, is, is everywhere, you know, and that's good. There are certain things that I know are sort of creative dead ends. Mm-hmm. Like bad relationships can kill, you know, I mean, <laughs> bad situations in your life can kill it. Mm-hmm. And really junky books and television, like junky television, not, not, there's some good television, but there are things that, that really just, I think, just drain your creativity. And there are things that I think that you can do that absolutely increase it and improve it. And so it's just a matter of making choices then. And being aware that you're doing something that's kind of, I wouldn't say it's self-destructive necessarily, but it's not helping you, mm-hmm. you know. Like challenging yourself, I think intellectually is, is always, like anything that's going to be new and to help you think in a new way has the potential for, you know, increasing your creativity. Speaking of helping people increase their creativity, can we talk a little bit about your book? If you can say the title of each one and a little bit about what people will find in it. Well, the first book was Color Harmony for Quilts. The publishers were interested in having us write about how color can be used to evoke an emotion. Or they wanted an adjective and how color responds to, how you can correlate colors and color and adjectives. And so we sort of tweaked that idea a little bit and, and decided that really we wanted people to understand that good color work is a universal idea. It's not dependent on a particular style. And that color decisions are best made when they're supporting a larger design intention. Mm-hmm. And that was the, the premise of Color Harmony. So that there's a lot of artist statements by the person about how they use color and then an analysis of why we think their work was successful. There's about 20 or 20 or 30 different people's quilts included in that book. It's not just our work. And then uh, the Modern Quilt Workshop, I love that book. I love it because, you know, I like the thoroughness of it. It's, it's, the, it's the book that if you don't own any quilting books and you want to make a quilt for the first time, you can pick up that book. The projects are rated by ease of experience levels needed, and it explains you know what skill you're going to learn, and you can have that book and teach yourself how to piece curves, which a lot of people find very challenging. Mm-hmm. You can learn a new binding technique in that book. I've been really delighted that it's been out for, I guess, was over like two years now, and um, it's still selling really well, and it still has... Nice following. I know on Diorama Rama has the modern quilt along with a bunch of people who are making quilts from that book, and that's just been so much fun for us to see. And then 
The Quilt Makers Color Workshop is a reissue of Color Harmony because for a number of reasons they uh, were not able, mostly 9-11, they were not able to market that book as they had hoped. And so they wanted to reissue it, but we felt ambivalent about wanting to reissue a book. We didn't want to mislead anybody about what the content of that book was. Mm-hmm. So it was reissued with a new chapter added, and there are four patterns in there. And each one is a color tutorial. That's the latest book, but I think the Modern Quilt Workshop, I think, is the one that has, people have responded to so much because there's patterns in there and there's specific nuts and bolts of, you know, how do you bind and how do you quilt and machine quilting versus hand quilting. Right. And I think people have really appreciated just the sheer technical, you know, information included in that. Well, and I, I do have, you know, the, the um, copy that I'm looking at of the, the reissue of the, your first book. And mm-hmm. it's, the examples are beautiful. Oh, thank you. The artist statements, it's great to read all that, you know, and then having your kind of expertise, you know, from you and Bill. Right. To kind of guide people along. A lot of people struggle with color, too. And I think I read, I don't remember which page I was on here, but you talk about how to make some decisions. And I, I love the photos you include that are photographs of, of just colors next to each other, like from nature and, right. and you know, flamingos. and you know. Right. And those are all pictures that we took. Yeah. And it, it kind of gets people thinking that your color palette can be just whatever appeals to you visually right. um, is what you should do. And maybe, because I think what happens every time if you go into a, a fabric store, you can get lost in the color because there's just so many choices. Absolutely. And you know? I think in the moder- in the Quilters Color Workshop, there's a page in the back that you can photocopy that you can take to the quilt shop. And it's sort of like, how to prepare to go to the quilt shop so you don't get that deer in the headlights, like... I know I came in here for red, but I love this turquoise. Oh, look at that yellow, you know, <laughs> which yeah, is so happens. easily happens. Yeah, and, and yeah, and I'm looking at that page in the back. It, it's yeah. really helpful because I know that's happened to me where I've gone in there. I'm in a quilt block swap. Like, I have the time mm-hmm. for that, but <laughs> right. But I um, I find that it's really challenging. You know, I love it because I usually do it on deadline, like, you know, a couple of days before yep. I have to be done. But I'll go and find out, what, you know, okay, what, what colors does a person want? And then um, I always end up coming home with something else, too, from mm-hmm. the fabric store. Right. <laughs> but um, it can become crazy though because if you go and you don't have a plan then you come up it's just can be more expensive and also can be just you know you come home and you realize you still don't have what you need one of the traps that people fall into is we always say it's fine to love a fabric you know just because it's a beautiful fabric but you also need to respect the role that a fabric can play in a quilt Mm -hmm. and you might not want to dress out of it but it might be the perfect you know it's it's the homely little tone on tone that's in the corner it's not going to jump out at you across the room, but it's the perfect fabric that's going to make your quilt work. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes hard to see that because there's so many others with way more sex appeal, you know, right, right. at the front when you walk in you, and you're right. so sidetracked, you know. Or something that you would want to wear a dress. You have a dress made. Exactly. Out of, you know, and, the, and the thing you'd want to wear a dress, you know, have, make a dress out of, you know, in a quilt you have so many fabrics and you don't want them. They all can't be stars, really. Exactly. Um, <laughs> exactly. You have to have some that are the supporting, you know, right. bringing it all together. Definitely. So I think your books are helpful to people who just want to get inspired and have a little guidance. Well, thank you. To open that door to their own creativity. That's what we hope for when we write them. And I do have a couple mechanical questions, yes. just real quickly. Some quilters iron their seams open. Yes. Uh, some iron them flat. I know from your books, you, you iron them open. Yes. Is that like a French thing, or where, where does that come from? <laughs> iron them to one side. I well, probably just insulted all the French listeners now. <laughs> you know, uh, well, I don't know. I don't know about France, but I, I know that it's kind of heretical that we do this. <laughs> you know, it's very controversial, you know, when we teach workshops. Um, and our 
feeling about it is that I think the ironing to one seams started out as being very desirable when you were hand piecing or hand quilting. Mm-hmm. because you're worried about batting, getting through between the stitches because you were doing three stitches to the inch instead of eight to 12 mm-hmm. that you would be doing on a sewing machine. But the truth of it is that if you iron it to the side, you're creating an uneven amount of wear. One side is, is bulkier than the other side. Mm-hmm. And if you're not piecing by hand and if you're not quilting by hand, our feeling is that the seam provided by the sewing machine and the quilting of the sewing machine is durable enough that, you know, the binding is going to wear out way faster than the batting is going to come through it. Mm-hmm. You're swapping one set of problems for another. That You're going to have problems with the wear of the side that's bulkier, sticking out more, and that's going to wear faster than the seam's going to split. But we'd also say that if you're hand piecing or hand quilting, that the ironing to one side is probably the better idea. I see. So it depends on what kind of quilting you're doing. Now, do you find that a lot of the quilters of your stature, do they iron their seams open or flat? Oh, we're the only ones, I think. Oh, really? Everyone else does to one side? Oh, that's what, yes. I I mean, everybody's very kind. And the other thing is that in garment making, if you think about it, if you make garments, you always iron the seams open. Mm -hmm. I think it's also because we quilt very, very densely. All of our, the quilts that, you know, we sell are quilted extremely densely. And the quilts in the book, you can see the texture in them. And it's a very different situation than if you're tying them or if you're quilting every six inches, then we're quilting every half inch. Mm -hmm. So the seams are not going to split open. But people ask you, it sounds like you've been asked that before. Yeah. Yeah. And we're asked that pretty much any time we teach anywhere. I don't care. People want to do it. We're just trying to give them the benefit of our thinking. And I think that it's one of those things that they were taught that way because their teachers were taught that way because their teachers were taught that way. And that nobody has sat back and said, well, it did make sense when you were hand sewing, but if you're machine sewing, do you still need to be doing that? Well, what made me think about it is I'm in a quilt block swap right now, and I kind of learned how to quilt by just trying it. Basically, I didn't take any classes in it. And I've always ironed my seams flat. I don't go to one side. I open it up. And Uh it's it's a pain in the butt sometimes if you're doing small piecing, but Mm -hmm. I like how it looks in the end. But in the swap, I've noticed that a lot of people go to one side. Right. And so I'm like, hmm, am I doing this wrong or what's going on here? But I guess it's just a preference thing. Right. So uh, the other thing is, as far as washing fabrics, do you wash before and after you quilt or just after? We pre-wash all fabric before we use it because for environmental reasons that, you know, you don't know what kind of finishing agent's been used. Part of it's that. And, you know, I said in one of our books, was that the bolt of fabric that was on the floor when the pest control guy came through? You know, you just don't know. Oh, yeah. You don't know, you know. And so I think for a health reason, I think it's smart to pre-wash everything before you start touching it. A lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the bigger reason to do it is, is bleeding and, and shrinkage rates. Right. That the base cotton goods that fabric manufacturers use differ. They're different types of cotton and they're shrinking at different rates. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I have a beautiful quilt that I made six, seven years ago that was a, a well-known brand of fabric and it's, it's red and white and the red bled onto the white. Oh, no. And I thought I had pre-washed it, but I guess I hadn't enough. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's kind of an insurance policy. Yeah, because you don't want to put all the hours in and then have it Absolutely, absolutely. So we pre-wash everything before we piece. And then after we finish quilting, if it's a functional quilt that's going to be washed at some other point, 
Um, we put everything in the washer and the dryer, which I know is also very shocking to some people. But we really like the texture mm-hmm. of it, and we have this kind of modernist approach that dryers are a part of our life, and let's develop a new look that because we have the ability to put it in the dryer, because it's more convenient to put it in the dryer. Well, yeah, it makes people hesitate when they're buying quilts. Is if They're like, wow, you know, this is going to require me to go to a special dry cleaner and or do something and special to it. Which is terrible environmentally. Yeah, yeah, well, and not only that, people feel like they can't really maintain it themselves. Right, know? and I think we're using the dryer as a design tool. Mm-hmm. That we're saying, what cool thing can you do with the dryer that you couldn't do if you didn't put it in the dryer? And so that's part of the reason that our quilts have so much texture is that we're stitching them very, very densely, and then we're putting it in the dryer, and the batting is shrinking mm-hmm. And after the stitching is already in place. So it gives it, I feel like the, the dryer process adds to the beauty of the quilt. Now, do you wash your batting before? You obviously no, don't if you're not. We don't, okay, so we that's don't, the part we don't that pre-wash does, the batting. That does the shrinking. Right. right? Okay. Right. So that's where you get your the that look. Yep. Yeah. Well, they're beautiful quilts, and Thank I've you. enjoyed seeing them on the web and in your books. And it's really um, it was such a pleasure to get to talk to you today. Well, I, I really thank you for for thinking of us. You know, it's it's always flattering when anybody is is interested in your work. And we've, you know, we've spent a lot of years now trying to build up our business, and it, it's very very touching to us that that people have found our books or our fabric useful. You know, and fun to use. So. Yeah, well, you guys are contributing on so many levels to um, We're trying the, a creative society here. <laughs> what, what can, before I let you go, yes. one, one last question. What can we expect from you guys next? What are you cooking up next? Oh, my goodness. Well, you mean, well I think we're, we are planning a projects book because I think through my writing for Whip Up, I've really realized that there are a lot of people, probably like you, who are crafting in lots of different... And not exclusive to one kind yes, of thing. Yeah. exactly, yep, exactly. And I think that I did a write-up on Whip Up about placemats, quilted placemats. Mm-hmm, oh I remember that one, gosh, too. Oh, my gosh, it was like 30-some comments. It was like amazing how suddenly people were really interested in something, such a simple idea. And we thought, you know, we need to realize that there are people out there who might not be interested in making an entire quilt but would be interested in piecing a smaller project. And I think the placement, the placemat write-up was really surprising to me, how many people asked for a tutorial of that, just other small projects. Because I think what we're sort of finding out as we think about it and as we teach more is that people love going to work on Monday morning and saying, look what I made this weekend. Yeah, right. And, you know, it's like, look what I did. I think that there's a tremendous value in having small, more easily accomplished projects that people who aren't ambitious enough to make a whole quilt might want to do placemats or a bag or a project with their children or something like that. So I think a projects book is definitely, I don't know when, because <laughs> it's kind of hard to imagine imagine getting anything else out soon, but uh, yeah. a projects book is definitely in the works. Well, that's awesome. Well, it will definitely let me know when that comes out. And, I will. Uh, we'll have you back to Thank talk you. about it. And definitely uh, the Mendy line, definitely. I think that's coming out next month, so I'm really, really excited about that. Well, that sounds really cool, too. And will that be in mainstream fabric stores across the country, or well, where do people have to go to look for that? Free Spirit sells only to quilt shops. Okay. Quilt shops or places that have significant quilt collections. So any quilt shop, and also um, you know, we sell it online, too, if, if you can't find it. Um, nearby. It'll be online um, the next month or so. Okay. Thank you for your generosity of time today. Oh, thanks. It was a pleasure talking to you. (laughs) Thanks to Weeks for sharing the inspiring story of how she became a fantastic quilter 
And I know a lot of you requested that I get weeks on the show. I'm so happy that I was able to do that for you. So I hope you enjoyed it. Fun's not over, folks. Don't forget to check out the free quilt pattern online at craftsanity.com and follow all those links back to the Fun Quilts website. And please enter to win one of the three copies of Color Harmony for Quilts. This is a great book for rookie and experienced quilters alike. Basically, anyone who wants to learn more about color and quilt design. You can enter the contest in a couple ways. Please put quilt contest in the subject line of your email. Include your name and mailing address so we can get the book to you if you're selected as a winner. For all you experienced quilters out there, to enter, all you have to do is email me a photo of a finished quilt, a quilt block, or a work in progress. Send that to jennifer at craftsanity.com. If you've never quilted before but you really want to learn, don't feel like you have to sit this one out. Please enter the contest. And here's what you do. You don't have to go out and try and make a whole quilt, because that would just be ridiculous. But just send me a note with quilt contest in the subject line and just write a sentence or two about why you want to learn to quilt. And you'll be in the contest too. Hopefully some of my quilt block swap friends will join in this giveaway. I'll put the link to that quilt block swap if you'd like to get involved in it. It's been really fun. The deadline for submissions is Tuesday, November 14th, and Abby, my two-year-old daughter, and also Craft Sanity's Vice President of Fun, will randomly select winners by drawing names out of a hat. A special thanks to Shelly in Lincoln, Nebraska, for buying some Craft Sanity buttons and supporting the podcast this week. I really appreciate it. Renee Rigdon and Zabette Stewart, who I interviewed for episode four of this podcast, have really gotten their website, The Anti-Craft, going the Anti-Craft staff is pleased to report that they have gotten a book deal. In their words, they say they have sold out and gotten a book deal. I don't think they've sold out. I just think they're smart ladies. They are going to be bringing you a collection of some fantastic projects, and they're actually looking for you to participate. If you'd like to get your day in the sun with the Anti-Craft staff, submit a project proposal to them by November 10th. I'll put the email address on my site so you know what you need to do, and I'll also have a link to their site so you can get more information. Good luck and congratulations, you guys. That's fantastic that you have a book deal. And the winner of Janice Taylor's Our Lady of Weight Loss book is Anu from Lake Park, Florida. So congratulations, and look for that showing up in your mailbox really soon. Thanks to everyone who entered. I really appreciate that. You'll be able to see the winning submission online. You guys have a great week, and no matter what, don't forget to craft sanity, my friends. It works for me. Tuesday is Election Day in America. Make sure your vote counts. Vote Craft Sanity at Podcast Alley. Craft Sanity will cut your taxes, increase your craft budget, and will stand firmly behind our children with its No Crafts Left Behind program. Just check Jennifer's basement. So remember, on November 7th, vote Craft Sanity at Podcast Alley. The world will be a better place. I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and I approve this message.